Thank you for inviting me and thank you for this generous introduction. And uh, it's wonderful to be with you all tonight. Grace and mercy and peace to you from God our Heavenly Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. My sermon text is the reading from Revelation 7, and I'll get to it in due time. The world has changed. It was already changed when early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. The world was already changed when Mary came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved, and exclaimed, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. What was changed? What has changed? To be sure, the night was still dark, the way nights are, save for the first stray rays of the dawn bringing the night's darkness to light. To be sure, the air was crisp and fresh, as was to be expected in springtime. The outline of the city's walls suggested Jerusalem was still there, beginning to stir and wake up the way it had for centuries, day in and day out. Jerusalem, which proved to be the grave of so many prophets. That very Jerusalem, self-same, comforted by its daily rhythms, by its ability to absorb the shock of the unexpected and to consign to oblivion the unwelcome. Things, in short, seemed to be following their courses just as they always had. Now, Mary's heart was no doubt heavy as she made her way toward the tomb. That was quite a change from just a week before. But as she walked, heavy-hearted, she was perhaps hoping to find comfort in the age-worn custom of anointing the dead, the custom of halting death's effects for just a while, a little while in which to let go and to move on as best as one could, the way it had always been done since time immemorial. Perhaps she just kept busy so she wouldn't have to let go, but just let it happen the way people did and had done for ages. What was changed then? What has changed? For one thing, the Lord's body was not where it should have been. It was missing. That was certainly unexpected. Shocking, traumatic. It's not easy to let go of the person if there is no body. It's not easy to deal with death unless it can be adorned with the appearance of life, unless its wounds and blows can be smoothed over, unless the stench can be overpowered with fragrance, overpowdered, rubbed over with ointment, masked unless the rigor mortis can be turned into the semblance of an eternal smile and motionlessness made to look like sleep. Only then can the living begin to transfer what's left of the person, that semblance of a life, into an even paler image in their memory. A life once lived, once full, 
now preserved as an ever-paling, ever-fading, ever-thinning remembrance. But the Lord's body was not in the tomb to be anointed and held onto for a little bit longer and made lifelike while it still could. It wasn't there for death to be smoothed over and cajoled into yielding some crumbs that the aching heart could feed on. You cannot gather a life gone if the body is missing. So what's changed? The world has changed. God the Father has raised his servant Jesus, his son, from the dead. Christ is risen. Christ was risen when Mary Magdalene set out for the tomb. Christ was risen, and with his resurrection, all the hard givens of the world had been upset. Its wisdoms put into question. Its pragmatism dissolved. The world was changed. How so? For one thing, God declared himself to be the one who manages death. Will we cover it up with makeup? Will we laugh it off for as long as we can? Well, we can only wish that out of sight would be out of mind and out of mind would be out of existence. In the midst of all this ineptitude, however heroic, God has set death aside in all its gruesome visibility, in all its agony, in all its chilling finality. At the center of God's throne, there stands a lamb looking as if it had been slain, whose wounds don't fester, but they don't heal either. Those wounds, the wounds of the risen and ascended Jesus, eternally declare that death has been conquered, that another has had a final word. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades, says the risen Lord. Where we, where we preserve a spectral image, mental footage, a phantasm of a life once lived, lived fully with touches and kisses and deep laughter and food and table fellowship, God says, let there be light and life. And he says, behold, I am making everything new. And he, he rolls away the stone. Not to release a pale ghost or for the sake of a fading memory, but for the sake of a life living fully on with touches and breath and food and table fellowship and soon to come a feast beyond compare, the fruit of the vine and song out of a myriad lungs, where we learn to let go of each other, where Mary hoped to let go of Jesus, God did not let go, and he doesn't let go of us. God the Father has raised his servant Jesus, his son from the dead, and with that he set death aside. But not only as the stubbornness of facts. 
he set death aside in yet another way, as that by means of which the world preserves itself. For death is often where the world, in all its perverse calculation, looks for life. The world, in its wisdom, claims it is better for one man to die for the people than for the people to perish. After all, you can't make an omelette without breaking eggs. There is no progress without collateral damage, no comfort without disposal, no prosperity without sacrifices, streamlining and uprooting, no revolution without enemies, no status quo without losers, no victory without casualties, and no peace without war. Makes sense, doesn't it? The world preserves life by accepting death and meeting out death. Yet its dealings with death betray the highest degree of ineptitude, indifference to the plight of another, and not infrequently cold calculation and sheer malice. And what is truly, what is truly frightening is not so much the fact of death, but rather how easily we absolve ourselves with our pragmatism. Sacrifices and collateral damage are a fact of life. Live with it. Do you hear it? Live with it. We absolve ourselves as we consign others to non-being. One who dares to protest must be disposed of for the sake of life. The one who dared to say that no sheep was worth abandoning, no sinner, no prostitute, no tax collector beyond God's concern was crucified. Jerusalem, too, believed that with one more prophet, dead and out of the way, life could go on as usual. But God overrode human judgment, our pragmatism, our realism and sobering calculation, and raised his servant Jesus, his son, from the dead. <clears throat> God puts in question our view of reality by declaring in the language of facts that he, he makes things, makes of things, people and events what he will make of them. Where we say death, he says life. Where we say it's better for one man to die for the people, he says, I will go after a single lost sheep and I, I will make a people for myself. And he speaks in the language of deeds through the empty tomb, through the prophet's body, not, not where, we, where we would like to see it. Where we say collateral damage, God says resurrection and ascension and a new heaven and a new earth. God has taken out of our hands the business of saving life, if it ever was in our hands, that is. The upshot, the world has truly changed. God the Father has raised his servant Jesus from the dead. And that is just the beginning. I looked, writes John, and there around God's throne was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, 
from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the Lamb, robed in white with palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. One of the elders in John's vision explains to him that the great multitude robed in white are those who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. In short, they are martyrs. They are those whom the Roman populace called atheists because they refused to acknowledge and worship the gods of Rome. In the eyes of the mob, it didn't matter that the Christians actually prayed for the well-being of the state and for the well-being of the emperor. No, the Christians were surely haters of humankind. The reasoning went something like this. If you don't bow down before our gods, the gods who protect us, then you must surely hate us. How could the Christians not hate the Romans? This twisted logic is hardly a first-century phenomenon. If you don't acknowledge my gods, you must surely hate me. I'll let you draw your own conclusions here. As for the Romans, whether they were convinced about the Christians' guilt or not, they believed that the Christians' obstinacy deserved the penalty of death. The Christians deserved death regardless of whether any actual crimes had been committed or not. In the book of Revelation, at the fifth seal, there is a moving image of souls under the altar. They were, John writes, the souls of those who had been slaughtered for the word of God and for the testimony they had given. They cried out with a loud voice, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long will it be before you judge and avenge our blood on the inhabitants of the earth? They were, John continues, each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. To be sure, as the souls of the martyrs show, the world is still the playground of death. It is still the playground of the realists who believe that they are masters of life and death, whether in Jerusalem or in Rome or in Beijing or Washington or here in Birmingham. But what the martyred souls also testify to is that what was once a given, our devilish pragmatism, our flirting with death, death itself, is a given no more. To be sure, the martyred souls long for the reign of divine justice throughout the world. But they also proclaim that the world has indeed changed. When we see them again, shortly thereafter, they are before the throne of God and worship him day and night within his temple. And the one who is seated on the throne will shelter them. For all their groans, for all their pleas, for all their longing, it is praise that comes to the fore. They continue to cry out with a loud voice, but now they cry out, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. For the unshakable, the seemingly unshakable given of the world is no more.
Christ is risen. And with his resurrection, the world has changed. The witness of the martyrs shows the extent of this change. On the one hand, the deaths make visible the world's continued obsession with death. It's deluded conviction that death brings about life. They bring to light the world's devilish pragmatism. That one sheep is worth sacrificing for the well-being of the flock. Or perhaps two sheep, perhaps even ten, perhaps half the flock, till the sacrifices themselves become sacrificed. The deaths of the martyrs, just like the death of Jesus, speak to the sinister gratuitousness of our inept flirtation with life and death. On the other hand, and even more eloquently, the martyrs demonstrate the impermanence of death, its fleetingness, its fluidity, its conditionality, its impotent rage. They show that death can be embraced. When Mary Magdalene went to the tomb, death seemed the only certain, insurmountable and unshakable thing. Impossible to overcome in its finality. One could at best wrest from, its, from it spectral crumbs of a once-lived life before the body's tranquil smile turned into a jeering lipless grin. Now, when the martyrs were torn to pieces by wild beasts, when the martyrs were made into living torches to light up the imperial gardens at night, they knew that someone else declared our flirtation with death irrevocably over, of no consequence, finished and done away with. There was and there is no need to let go of life. For God the Father has not let go of human life, but raised his servant Jesus, his son, from the dead. And he, he is just the beginning, the first fruits. The martyrs knew living horror, but they knew that Christ was already risen. Their brother and their God. They knew that their lips would smile and sing and feast. And so it is. They will hunger no more and they will thirst no more. The sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God, God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Christ is risen. The world has truly changed. And we too may join in the everlasting song of praise. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus unto life everlasting. Amen.